If you open your Bibles to Matthew 18, um, <clears throat> we'll be there this morning. It's page 702 if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats. And we'll be working through a parable this morning. And in the parable is a literary device. I don't know the name of it. I gave it a name. I call it an exaggerative understatement. An exaggerative understatement. It's a case where there's hyperbole or exaggeration that's being used in the words. But even though it's an exaggeration, it's falling short of the point it's trying to make. In other words, it's exaggerating to get to a point, but it, it, it still is, even in its own exaggerated form, is, is less than the implications of the idea. I'll give you an example, maybe how you might experience it in our own life. If you had a child, you know, say you had a little son, Tommy, and he had never been to Disney World, and he found out you were going to take him to Disney World, and he would say, what is, what is Disney World like? And you'd tell him a little bit, and he would say, is it better than the playground at McDonald's? You might say, it's better than a hundred of those. And Tommy would be like taken to a new place, right? A <laughs> hundred McDonald's. The truth is, it's better than that, isn't it? You're exagger- In his little sphere of reality, you're exaggerating. And he knows it, right? You're blowing it up. You're taking his best thing and blowing it up. So you're exaggerating in his little sphere, but because... He can't even conceptually get to the, the realness, which is outside of his experience. The truth is, it's way better than 100 McDonald's playthings. At least for me it is. It is way better. You know, when I, when I, sometimes when I kiss my daughter and I'm putting her down to bed, I will say to her, we have this thing. I'll say to her, like, I love you more than the moon. And then she responds with something that rhymes, like, I love you more than a spoon. And we, we, do this, we do this for a while, and it's really sweet, and I hope it never ends. But when I say I love you more than the moon, that is an exaggerative understatement. I'm picking something that's larger than life, but it's still smaller than my love for her. You're going to see that this morning in the parable. You're going to see these ex- exaggerative understatements. There's going to be numbers and concepts that are put out there that are really big, really big. big. And so to take our minds to the limit, and then when we get to the limit, we're going to be expected to realize that the example falls short. That the truth is beyond that. We're studying forgiveness. That's what we've been doing for the past, we're now in the fourth week of this, and we have one more week. And thus far in forgiveness, we've been, considering God's work of forgiveness to us and our work of confession, repentance to him. How to create a straight highway between us and the Lord. And this morning, we're going to take that idea that we've been working on for three weeks and we're going to turn it sideways and say, how now do we create a highway of forgiveness to our fellow brother and sister? Which for us, I think, is harder sometimes. It may be because it's the only time we ever have to forgive. We never find ourselves forgiving the Lord. And Matthew 18 gives a great parable. Now the parable sets up after several teachings on that Christ is giving to the, the people. How to treat one another, how to behave towards one another. And in verse 15 through 20, 
we arrive at what's a familiar passage to the church of how do you confront a brother or sister in Christ in the church? How do you confront them of wrongdoing and, Lord willing, restore them uh, back to the Lord? And it has that if your brother sins against you, you go to him and you tell him the offense. And if he repents, he's saved. If he doesn't, you get, a, you get another friend or two and you come and you, you iteratively try to coax him back into the fold. It's this idea that right, the church survives, the church community survives on being holy and truth-centered. And so God's caring for that. Well, it gives birth to a question, I think, that Peter asks in the 21st verse. He ends up, how, how often do I have to forgive is the question that ends up coming up. You can imagine he's dealing with the reality of the process of restoration with our brother. And what comes to mind is, with many of our minds is, well, what if you encounter somebody and they repent and come back and then they slip and they come back and they slip and they come back and they slip and they come back? When does that end? When is enough enough? And so Peter asks this question, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, being Christ, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, I, I read it, I said it that way, as many as seven times, because I think Peter is using an exaggerated number. There's evidence that the Hebrew tradition might have been three. Yeah, you forgive three times. That might not be Hebrew, though. I mean, third time's a charm. We always use three. So maybe it's just people. Enough is enough. But I think Peter grabbed a bigger number, a bigger number, a better number, a number of perfection in the, the Hebrew tradition. So maybe he's grabbing it for these sorts of reasons. And he's putting it in front of the Lord. But I don't think Peter actually wants to know the arithmetic number of how many times to forgive. I think Peter wants to know the answer of it, what is the limit of grace and forgiveness? That's all I think he wants to know is, is when is enough enough? Where is the limit? Is there, is there a certain number of times? Is there a certain principle you can give us? When do we know? When does grace run out? To which Christ gives this answer. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, this is an exaggerative under, understatement, right? But some of you may remember, it used to be, some of you may remember translations 70 times 7. It's not about the math. The, Jesus, obviously, this is an exaggerative understatement. He took Peter's big number and blew it out of the water. He made such a big number, a ridiculously large number, so as, so as to give the impression of, so as to make our minds point beyond the number to, I don't think there is a limit. I really don't think it's important whether it's 70 times 7 or 77. I mean, the translators can visit about that until the cows come home. The point is, we forgive, Period. Now, the parable that follows is not a parable about the number. The par it's not a parable establishing that we 
We never stop forgiving. It actually, the parable actually shifts. And it, to me, it's a very important shift. It's the necessary shift. The parable shifts away from the teaching of the children of God are forgiving people and they offer forgiveness as long as they are on the earth. They offer forgiveness. Okay? I think it, the, the parable shifts from that idea to the deeper idea of where does our motivation and power to forgive come from? Because if we're supposed to be that forgiving, how do we become that forgiving? I mean, I have to assume that most of you have dealt with real forgiveness, having to really give forgiveness. And some of you are in the process of forgiving. If you've dealt with it, it's among the harder things we do. For some of us, it may be the hardest thing in the Christian life you will ever have to do. So if we're going to do it, and if we're going to do it for the rest of our life, frequently, not rarely, as often as it's called upon, how do we do that? Jesus gives us a parable. Now the parable, it has three sections, and I'll point them out to you as we read. When we read the parable, I want to remind you that parables try to do something, they don't try to do everything. So parables are not systematic theology, they're not precise, they are, they're, they're not delicate theological constructs, they're thrusty allegorical teachings for people which means the biggest truth is sitting right at the simple level for the normal person to take it in. A parable, everyone can be a scholar of a parable. So as we read and, and you, you wonder what, well, what happened to those people or if, if there's details and you're curious and the parable doesn't seem to care about it, it's because the parable doesn't care about it. The parable's trying to say one thing, one or two things really, really well and we should try to hear it that way. So if you're splitting hairs, you're at the wrong you're at the wrong level, and don't ask me afterwards. I'm just teasing. You can ask me. Let me read it. Here's the three sections of the parable. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now that's part one. Here's part two. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. That's part two. Here's the final part. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers 
until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Uh, The the last verse unlocks a little bit. Um, So also my father puts God in the seat of the king in the parable. My father God will behave as the king has behaved towards you. And this parable is being said among the believers, right? It stems from the question of Peter. So it's, it's a parable for us on how God expects us to live. And what I want to do is I want to back up and just walk through the different sections to try to get a, a sense of, uh, to hear, have their ears and to, and to kind of recollect and consider the implications of the parable. If you go to the very beginning, it talks about how the king, who is the Lord, comes to settle accounts with his servants. So the Lord is coming to get what is rightfully his. There is a debt that has been accrued between him and his servants, and he's collecting on the debt. He's not extorting money. This is not an imperial conquest. He's not taking what isn't his. He's collecting what is rightfully his from his servants. Servants owe the king some debt, and one of them owes him a particularly large debt. The amount is 10,000 talents, which to their ears, listening, is a ridiculous number. Out of control ridiculous. In the realm of servants, one talent is 20 years of labor. You would work for 20 years to accrue a talent. So among this servant, the fact that he's 10,000 talents in debt is 200,000 years of labor. That's the number. Jesus is dropping on them. Clearly, Clearly, there's a principle because the number is so ridiculously large. In fact, the Greek here, the number 10,000 in the Greek is the largest number that, the largest numeral that has a name. So there's not a bigger number that has a name to the Greek. The, the word is myria, where we get myriad from. Okay? So that is the largest numeral that has a word, and talent is the largest enumeration of money that has a word. So Jesus is just kind of putting together the biggest and the biggest. The biggest number with the biggest amount. If he were saying it today, he might say there was a, a servant who owed the king a gazillion dollars. Okay, it's along those lines of where if you were putting yourself in the servant's shoes, which we ought to, you'd think there's no way I could ever hope to pay back this debt, which rightfully belongs to the king. It, it's, it's an exaggerative understatement. It's a way of taking our mind on a trajectory that brings us beyond numbers. There is a servant in the midst who has a debt to the king that is so woefully large that there's no hope of paying it back. Now, a tip-off as to the character of the servant, you can see by the fact that he pleads, can I just have a little more time? Can you imagine having like $1,000 in your pocket and owing 200,000 years of wages? You need more than a little time. (laughs) 
At any rate, he, he gets down on his knees and he pleads with the king, please show me mercy. Just a little more time. He's not asking for real mercy even. Just time. I can get this. I can make this happen. And when the king sees his plea for mercy, the king has compassion. And the king forgives the debt. The whole debt. Now this is real money. This is money even kings don't blink at. Like in all the ancient writings we find, it's rare that 10,000 talents are being exchanged. 10,000 talents are exchanged like when the Babylonians come in and raid you and they raid the treasury. It's that kind of level of money. So the king forgives it. The king takes the loss on his own books. Okay, that's the first part. And you know, when we, when we place God in that seat, right, and we, we find resemblance with our fellow servant, the implications of Christ setting up are significant, right? You, your debt before the Lord, you should think of it not as a small thing, but as something that exceeds your ability to grasp. Like if you go as far out as to what has, what, what has God done for me here, you are more right to exaggerate it to the extent that you can grasp and then realize you're understating it. And then when we think, it is not like God is, you know, the dragon smog who sits in a mountain of gold and it doesn't, ah, you know, what's, what's 10,000 talents? It's real money. I mean, the church is called. It is not like God paid our debt of sin. Ah, psh, sure. His son shed his blood and died on the cross to pay. So there is a very, this is a very large transaction that is taking place here. You'd think it would affect him. But we get to verse 28. And this, this servant who is forgiven much turns and leaves, and he's walking, and I, it doesn't say immediately, I don't know, but I get the impression that he leaves, and in very little time, with very little reflection, he goes from profound forgiveness that exceeds his ability to even fully understand and grasp. He goes from that to choking out a fellow servant, saying, Give me, shaking him down. Give me what you owe me. On a comparatively small sum, 100 denarii. That's like a couple months' wages. He's forgiven 200,000 years of work. He seizes a fellow servant. Notice it takes it to a fellow servant. It's not an underservant. It's not one of his inferiors. It's a fellow servant. He goes to another brother, puts him in a headlock, and noogies him until he gets his 100 denarii. I mean, it's, it's... it's cruel. And what's interesting is the second servant, servant behaves in almost precisely the same fashion as the first servant. He pleads, oh, just give me a little more time. I mean, Jesus is, is making it clear to us what is the same and what is different. I mean, the amounts are vastly different. The way they plead for mercy is the same. 
and he doesn't hear. He throws him into prison. It brings us to this third section. So he gets ratted out, right? The fellow servants rat him out to the king. The king hears. The king comes, and when the king comes, he brings an indictment on him. And the indictment has something to do with this. How can you have taken the mercy I gave you and not change you? How is it possible that you would receive so much mercy from me and it not affect your life? That you would go off and demand justice from your brother? You've missed me. That's the heart of what the king is saying. You've missed me. I did for you what cannot even be estimated in your mind. If I were to exaggerate my grace to you, I would fall short. That's what I did for you. And yet you turn around and behave to a brother, someone just like you, as though you weren't justice. This is how God sees it when we do not forgive. You know, sometimes parables are tough, and and the beauty is you don't want to miss them, and you don't want to tamp them down and flatten them out. Thank God for some of these tough parables. Just stick it in our face. This is what it is like if we claim to receive the grace of Jesus Christ for our salvation and yet turn to our brother and sister in this plane of life and demand to extract justice from them. And thinking, how is it that we do this, right? Because we do this. Certainly, I will say, it's very hard to forgive sometimes. So how do we do this? There's a few ways, I think, a few ways that we do this. One, I think people might do this when they view their exchange between God and themselves, the exchange of mercy and grace that happened, when they view that as a very narrow aspect in their life, when their religion and their spiritual life is highly compartmented to be kind of theological ideas of a theological exchange of something they believe. When that's what it is, it doesn't, it doesn't breed out to the rest of their life. So they don't see the correlation between how God has treated me is how I ought to treat others. Because their religion is just part of what they do. It's Sunday, or it's a moment, or it's a daily bread reading. It's this narrow thing in their otherwise vast life, which is counter to God. God is vast and wants to cross every aspect of our life so that the grace that we receive from him is not a narrow idea. It should be an all-encompassing idea. Our forgiveness from God is not on the periphery of our belief statement. It is at the center of who we are. You take out the grace and forgiveness of God in the death and resurrection of his son, and we have no more good news. We have no news. There's nothing on Sunday but football. Forgiveness is the center of our faith. So to narrowly constrict that idea to something that is transacting between you and the Lord and not touching or interfering with the rest of your life is to have missed the heart of the gospel. 
and should cause doubt as to whether you have it. I'm always comfortable offering doubt because there's always availability. We don't want to be worshiping wrongly the Lord of grace. Here's another way that it might be wrong. Maybe you have taken the profound mercy of God, but you do not realize how much you've received. And in comparison in your life, the harm that has been done to you feels more real and even a greater debt than the debt that was paid. And in your mind, maybe Jesus, God is like that smoggy dragon with tons of gold. That it, just, it didn't really matter to him. Tell yourself the story again. The story of the cross. Did it matter? Did Jesus sit in Gethsemane and watch his clock and say, I guess it's time? Or did he, did he cry and weep tears of blood because of your sin and my sin? Did it cost the Lord? Did it break the earth? But I think sometimes we just unconsciously assume that our brother owes us 10,000 talents and God did 100 denarii of work. We need to put that in the right order. God has done a great and otherwise unimaginable thing for you in dying for you. It exceeds. Were I to exaggerate it in numeric fashion, I would fall short. And the harm that you've received from your brother is relatively inconsequential in light of the surpassing joy and richness of his grace. I think those are two major ways that we can arrive at a place where we want to extract justice from our brother and yet rest in the grace of God. To which God says, do not be at rest because you don't understand me. If you look at the judgment here, by the way, I, I want us to be clear. This is not, I do not believe this is God giving a conditional salvation. God, I do not think, is giving us a teaching that says that you can be saved so long as you're a really good forgiver. That's justification based upon your ability to forgive. I don't think that's what God's doing. God is very clear throughout his word that we are justified by our faith through his work. That's consistent. So what is he doing here? I think what he's saying is, is your, just like you would say, a tree is known by its fruit. It's the same thing. Your ability to forgive is indicative of your ability to grasp the gospel. That's what he's saying. He's saying there is no possible way, this is worth hearing, there's no possible way that you have really held on to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you if you have no capacity to show mercy to your fellow man. You have missed it. He is not king in your life. And you do not know what he's done for you. You may have made certain academic ideas. You may be attracted to the idea of forgiveness. You may have intellectually punched the ticket of belief, but you have not received the giver. Therefore, you have not received the gift. The faith is not an academic salute to good news. What person in the world does not want to be forgiven of sin? 
of course that's good news. God wants more than that. God has come to plant his kingdom in you. That's what he wants to do. God's salvation cannot be where his kingdom does not reign. That's what it's saying. To a Christian reading this, a genuine Christian reading this, is, is healthy, encouraging conviction of looking back in your life going, where am I struggling to forgive? Lord, show me. If this is, I want to affirm you. Like if this is kind of the intellectual, the conversation happening inside of you, your internal conversation, it's a sign of health. Lord, where am I not being forgiving? And Lord, show me and make me forgiving because I want to be like you. I want that. That shows that the kingdom of God is in you. Okay? Hearing this teaching and reacting in a defensive way, but you don't know what they did to me. is a tip-off that you've missed the cross. He is wounded and scarred for you. The greatest gap, the greatest mystery in this parable, I want to call it a gap, it's between verse 27 and 28. I think this is to me to return on the parable, so to read through it and then come back and go, Lord, where do I need to be different? Lord, where, what, What's missing? It's between 27 and 28. How does a guy in 27 receive all of this compassion and mercy and forgiveness from the Lord and then 28 walk out and choke someone out? How does that happen? Can you imagine? I mean, this is believers. Do you see the premium on us recollecting and meditating and thinking about what has been done for us? That is the greatest exercise of a Christian is the recollection of the cross. God, I can't believe that. How do you do we do that for me? In your continuing life, of imp- your imperfect life where you make mistakes and continue, God's grace continues. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. How does it much more abound? How does it continue? Why, when I do the things I don't want to do and don't things, do the things I want to do, why, at the very end of that, does Paul say, but grace, be, thanks be to God, for he's rescued me. How is that? The more and more you continue to try to measure what God has done for you and you need a new ruler and a new yardstick and now you're from denier to talents and from talents to thousands of talents and to 10,000 of talents until everything you can do and think is an exaggerative underestimation of his grace for your life. You do that and your verse 28 will be different. This pithy failure to recognize God's grace is doom. which is why we do this in remembrance of him. Okay. I want to offer, alongside of, of the scriptural teaching, I want to offer some thoughts. I, I assume, I assume in our fellowship, as among all people, there are people who are wounded and scarred and they have a debt that is owed them from an offender and they have difficulty forgiving. And I want to offer what I think are some helpful ways of of heading towards forgiveness. Number one, and I've I've sort of said it already, but number one, forgiveness is not primarily a strenuous discipline that you rigorously exercise. It is not primarily a muscle. 
it is primarily an outflowing of an awareness of what God has done for us. What, what I mean to say is, if you desire to become more forgiving, or if there's an issue that you have a difficulty bringing forgiveness to, the answer is not primarily in concentrating on how to get forgiveness there. Lord, make me more forgiving. Help me to forgive him. Help me to forgive him. Help me to forgive him. That's not primarily the goal. The goal, I believe, greater fruit in the long run comes from realizing what God has done for you. In other words, those who bring forgiveness best there have their eyes fixed there and are in regular meditation and awe of what God has done for them. Because anyone who has been saved from 10,000 talents of debt find 100 denarii inconsequential. So that is the first. You want a discipline. The discipline is to be fixated on the cross. And I believe it will bear better long-term fruit in your work of forgiveness. Number two, I think it's helpful to clearly observe what the cost of forgiveness is and what forgiveness is and isn't. Forgiveness is accepting the wounds and debt on yourself. That's what it is. It's taking what's been done against you and leaving it on you. It's owning it. It's letting go of justice. See, in our Christian mind, right, it's very Christian to think of justice, and it's very Christian to think of grace, and sometimes they want to compete, right? In forgiveness, grace wins. In forgiveness, this rightful claim of justice must be subverted to the holy action of mercy. And so sometimes, in a person who otherwise is seeking the Lord, they have these two good things that are vying for attention. One of them has to be put to death. One of them has to be given over to the Lord. The Lord has justice. I play the role of grace. Which means those who are forgiving will be wounded and scarred when we get to heaven. And you know what we'll do? We'll go to Jesus and we'll, we'll compare our scars. That's what we'll do. And he wins. This is what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not declaring something that's wrong or right. That's enabling Okay? Forgiveness is not behaving as though it never happened. That's sweeping it under the rug. Forgiveness is not pronouncing the full restoration of a relationship. This is hard. This is why forgiveness needs clarity. For the full restoration of a relationship, there must be forgiveness and there must be repentance. There are two sides to that. You, no one person commands both sides of that. We are helpless in the one and able in the other. I cannot forgive myself of my sin. I can but repent. God cannot repent for me. So some people, the reason they have difficulty getting to forgive, forgiveness is because in their mind, forgiveness means making this relationship whole again. You can't. It's beyond, it's beyond your singular ability to fully restore that relationship. You, however, are called to preemptively condition your soul with forgiveness so that they, when they come for repentance, might not meet someone expecting justice. That is what you can do. 
And after all, did he not die for us before we came to him? Forgiveness is not declaring wrong is right. It's not behaving as though it didn't happen. God doesn't say he's going to forget our sin. He's going to say, I'm going to choose to remember it no more. There's a difference. Okay? He's not going to bring it back up. And it's not pronouncing the full restoration of the relationship. Number three, consider that Satan desires to typecast you by your victimhood. Satan's common strategy in in our lives is to make us flat, one-dimensional people who are labeled by our victimness. Victim destroys life more than almost any other thing. God saves victims and makes them glorious victors. So the work of God is to meet you in your harm and to bring you from there into his glorious life. The work of Satan is to make you sit in your harm and define your life by it. It's idolatry of your victim status. So I'm saying, not only are you called to give forgiveness so that someone might be invited into restoration, but your life is also infinitely better when you embrace the power of forgiveness for yourself and God. And number four, anything that matters in this life takes time and it's hard. So for God to give a difficult parable like, you watch how you forgive others. I would not want you to be confused that you need to do all of that right now. I don't think that there's a prayer that we can pray or a moment. If it's legitimate for you, I would expect it would take a while. Everything that's decent in our lives takes whiles. What you can do, though, is you can set the course towards forgiveness now. That, to me, that takes, that's a moment. When under the conviction of God, you say to the Lord, Lord, I am changing the direction on this thing and I'm putting this harm behind me. I'm gonna choose to own it for myself. It may take me the rest of my life to find victory on this thing, but I'm setting my course away. You might have to tie down the wheel of this ship because it wants to pitch back into the sin. But you say, no, Lord, I'm gonna do my best to hold the course away and take that moment of harm or that episode or that incursion into my life and make it a dot. I wanna make it a dot. Setting the course can happen now. Holding the course, it may be a while before the wind's at your back. And God sees all of that. Every moment your hand's on the tiller may be an act of righteousness, a gentle offering to the Lord that rises as a wonderful fragrance of obedience. Every time that you fail, you bring it back up, like, you, like vomit, and then you have to deal with it. Every time that you deal with it, you, the Lord receives pleasure and gives you love. That is the life of a victor. It's a good life. It's a worthy life. this is God's good and perfect will. I just want to bring it one step farther before we go to his table. God's will for us is not that you would forgive. He doesn't, he's not thinking about the moment. He's not thinking about the thing. God's will is that you would be all forgiving. 
Not even so. Not more than what maybe you're thinking. It's not even God's desire that you would be forgiving. It's God's desire in your life. If, if his manner of living and work on our behalf is testament that what he would want in us, it's God's desire that your forgiving nature would be so proactive in others' lives that it would invite their repentance. You see, we often sit on the edge thinking, when she comes to tell me she's sorry, well, then I'll forgive her. Which is another way of extracting justice because you're enjoying the moment of repentance too much. That is not the Lord. The Lord has, before our act of repentance, already done the work. And if you wait until they repent, you will, be not re- you will not be ready to forgive. You would not be called a forgiving child of God if you wait. We do the work. We do the work of forgiveness now so as to tempt and tease the offender towards Christ. That's what we do. And when we get to heaven, we show our scars to Jesus. And he wins. Let's pray, Lord. As we come to your table and as we we marvel at what you've done, Lord, Father, as you've put communion before us as a way of remembering, don't forget what I've done for you. Don't forget what I've done for you. Lord, we say this morning, we have not forgotten, Lord. We just have a hard time. Our imagination is flat when it comes to your work. Work in us, Lord. Father, take the most boring person here and plant a seed of what you've done, the wonderment of what you've done for us there. Lord, I lift up, I lift up the victim in this room who's been wearing that label, been wearing those clothes far too long. Lord, I pray, I pray this morning as they would touch uh, the bread which represents your body and as they would drink the juice which represents your blood, I, I pray that they would take on that new covenant and they would move on from here. Father, we need your grace to be who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.